They leave Omelas, they walk ahead into the darkness, and they do not come back. The place they go towards is a place even less imaginable to most of us than the city of happiness. I cannot describe it at all. It is possible that it does not exist. But they seem to know where they are going. The ones who walk away from Omelas. We are reading old genres and pulp fiction for the very first time. Each month, we pick a new theme. We try to keep all of our references to books and authors that we've previously read together for this podcast so we can draw connections between different genres. Can we create a web of connections between books and different genres and time periods? I don't know, but we're going to try. This month, we are reading dystopian novels. First, we read Repent, Harlequin, said the TikTok man by Harlan Ellison, and then Cat Country by Lao Shu. Now, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas by Ursula K. Le Guin. Where does utopia end and the dystopia begin? Who makes the claim that a society is dystopian? And how do dystopian stories feed on these real-world events? And finally, how should an individual respond to living inside of a society like that? I'm John, and I'm interested in the idea of guilt in this dystopia. I'm Zach. And I'm interested in how the narrator uses these impressionistic details to, to world build. I'm Bob, and I'm interested in the use of utopia in dystopia. In our last two dystopian books, Repent Harlequin and Cat Country, the worlds are clearly bleak. Omelas, however, starts out perfectly utopian. So I want to ask, did starting out this way change your experience of the dystopia? Right. I think that this book had something kind of similar to like a, a Twilight Zone ending. The Twilight Twist, if you will. I think the Twilight Twist is when someone takes off their shirt and they're glittering. <laughs> Thank you for the pity laughs. So that first date twist. Like, like the characters in the vampire novel Twilight, we're given all these lavish examples, you know, flutes playing. You get these old women, it says, that are small, fat, and laughing, that are passing out flowers from a basket, and, and these people wearing those flowers in their hair. It's basically just a paradise. And one of the things that Le Guin does is move from really broad, sweeping images into these highly specific, visceral images. So like from this grand utopia down to a single dark place, dirty room with rotten mops and a traumatized child. So I think that this is one of the innovations of this story, this form that moves from broad into specific. But how else do you feel like the author creates these twists? So when I'm reading the book, I just get such vivid mental images and it's so vivid. It's almost like it's, it's not even real. It kind of reminds me of that David Lynch movie uh, where you have all the blue skies, red roses, perfect white picket fences. And all the time I'm just kind of expecting, you know, the ear in the mud crawling with ants. You know, I think especially the use of color during the horse procession here is just so vivid. It's like a painting. Quote, All the processions wound towards the north side of the city, where on the great water meadow called the Green Fields, boys and girls, naked in the bright air, with mud-stained feet and ankles and long, lithe arms, exercised their restive horses before the race. And then here we have this use of color, like all of the colors are so exaggerated in this uh, description. Everything is described with a color or having a visual 
image attached to it, even if it's not immediately visual. For example, uh, the horses wore no gear at all, but a halter without a bit. Their manes were braided with streamers of silver, gold, and green. So here it's like all of these colors are used in order to evoke this festival image. And it's really just like too much to take in at once. Yeah, I like how even the air is described as bright. Like we're giving we're giving color and character to something which is I mean, completely invisible. Oh, my God. I think just the whole thing freaks me out. It's like midsummer. You know, you see all these nice things. Come to my country, Sweden. It's very nice. I'll introduce you to my family. And then, every, you know, every detail <laughs> I find horrifying. It's like, oh, the horses, we don't use bits. We just ride on their backs. And I'm just shaking my head going, oh, no. Oh, no. Everyone wears beautiful ribbons and we dance in the green meadow. It's awful. It's terrifying. And I think that Le Guin is maybe poking fun at Omalas to, to prime us for that twilight twist. So here's a, here's a quote where Le Guin actually says, I fear that Omalas so far strikes some of you as goody-goody. Smiles, bells, parades, horses, bleh. If so, please add an orgy. So I think there's a, a little mockery of utopias and creating a utopia in general. Yeah, she, Le Guin seems to assume that we are sort of jaded by this utopia, like we're already kind of over it, you know, we've all seen so many representations of, of utopias, and we almost always then experience it afterwards as not being as good as it's cracked up to be, or that there's something lurking under the surface. And I feel like she's kind of playing on this assumption in the reader. At one point in this story, she actually calls the people bland utopians. Well, not so much calls the people bland utopians, but she anticipates that the reader must be perceiving them as bland utopians. So it's clear she's aware that the reader is not going to be necessarily taking these ideas seriously at the beginning. And the fact that she's therefore playing it up so much in her language and her description really kind of emphasizes that for me. Like she's she's definitely playing on this disbelief of the reader. Yeah, but I'm not really convinced that Le Guin is cynical about the utopian aspect of Omelas. Like, as a reader, I think that it's possible for the individual person who's reading this to find it unconvincing, but I think that it's really important that the author not be cynical about this presentation, that the author give it to us in a way that isn't undercut by cynicism. Because if this was a true parody of a utopia, I, I worry that it would undercut not only the first half, but it would also ruin the twist. But I guess it does raise the question, because if this is a parody, how does that affect how we understand the broken child to be working as a symbol? Hmm, parody or not parody? I feel like there's some cynicism. I'm not so sure. I really like how this book is divided. We go from the above-ground utopia to the underground horror show. So here's the quote. Do you believe? Do you accept the festival, the city, the joy? No? Then let me describe one more thing. So I think the no, that question, is very interesting. It's as if the narrator, as you guys have said, you know, we've seen all these utopias before. The narrator is saying, yes, I know you've seen all these utopias before, so you don't believe this one? Well, here's how utopias are made, and then it's awful. Yeah, and that's that's really one of the most interesting things that Le Guin does, is, is talking directly to the reader and asking, do you believe that this story that I'm telling you is real. But I do think that there are different kinds of belief. As readers, I mean, there's suspension of disbelief, and there's actually believing that it exists. 
suspension of disbelief is something that every reader is intimately familiar with. Like, I may not believe that Samuel Butler's character found a real-life country in New Zealand named Erewhon, or going back to Laoshire, that there's a civilization of cats living on Mars. But as a reader, I suspend my disbelief in order to follow that plot and try to understand the author's message. Now, in contrast, actually believing that it exists would mean, do you believe that Omelas is real, or at least has the possibility of being real in the near future, that this isn't just some fairy tale? So I think there's maybe a a key difference here in what we mean when we talk about belief. I feel like what you're talking about is like believing that a story is possible or, you know, suspending our disbelief and just kind of saying, okay, let's say that this is possible in order to entertain the story and actually engage with the ideas. You know, I mean, we're reading fiction here, right? So nobody likes that guy at the party. He's like, yeah, well, it's not real though, is it? And it's like, the point is not that it's real, but that it's, it's possible, right? It's thinkable. That's not the kind of belief I think that is uh, questioned here, but rather I think there's a there's a deeper kind of belief, more of a kind of a real-life belief. Like, although it's definitely possible to have a society like this, I don't think many of us, or at least I personally, believe that we will ever actually achieve it. And I think that's the belief that is really kind of being dealt with here, this belief that although it's possible, it's never going to be actual. And, you know, there's there's an example here from the story, quote, they do without monarchy and slavery, and they also get on without the stock exchange, the advertisement, the secret police, and the bomb. And I feel like we, we look at this and we say, well, sure, you can maybe get along without one of these things or get along without another one of these things. But it seems that as a society, it's very hard to conceive of how we can get along without any of these things and, you know, without seriously damaging our ability to to function as a society. And to me, this gives me kind of the atmosphere that I almost feel like envious of these these utopian people. I'm like, I'm almost rooting for it to fail in some sort of dark sense. At least that's how I almost process the story. And I think this is something that Le Guin is aware of here. You know, what that we're almost looking for it to fail. And in this sense, we're almost satisfied when we find out there is a problem deep down. You know, we're looking for that problem as a reader. Well, I was certainly waiting for this thing to fail. I'm not living in this weird hippie commune called Omalas. I really like what you both of you just said. And I think that Le Guin is playing with both of these ideas with the tradition of building a suspension of disbelief and the tradition of the utopia, because yes, they've been done to death. She's playing with both. Yes, I'm making a utopia. Yes, I'm making a fantasy. Please join me. And I really like what, John, what you've just said, the idea that it could be real, but we don't think it ever really will be. In this story, the the problem is in us. We have to consider that, that we get to make a choice, that we're creating this, this utopia, whereas in the other dystopian books, we weren't creators, we weren't participating, we just got to see something condemned. This is like the narrator kind of, you know, at the bar asking you to to bend your ear over and she's going to tell you a story. She's going to whisper you a story and then ask you a very serious question. In our past two dystopias, we see how badly a ruling body or a culture can limit humanity. But here we're being asked to consider what we as individual readers are willing to accept. Yeah. And I think that this lend me your ear style is, is really Le Guin's brilliance in this story. 
that this interacting with readers directly, because it's asking the reader implicitly, what would you do in this situation? And part of that comes through the world building of it. Like, quote, what else? What else belongs in the joyous city? The sense of victory? Surely the celebration of courage. But as we did without clergy, let us also do without soldiers. So notice how as Le Guin is giving us this world, she doesn't demonstrate. She doesn't say, this is how the world is. Instead, she alludes. She permits the reader to think of it in a certain way. Instead of saying, the city is X, she says, let the city be X. And the, the, the reader is invited to fill out all of these details, but only if the reader wants. Definitely. And it makes the story feel really fresh. It's fresh for a lot of reasons. It's a new take on dystopia and utopia, but it's extremely fresh because we are participating in in the world building, just like you said. Right. The reader seems to be complicit in building this this world of the story. You know, you can fit it to your own taste to a certain extent. And really, you know, this is the the difficulty of utopias where you know, you would think of a utopia as being like the ultimate society or the perfect society, but by definition, a perfect society would be, you know, a single idea. There can only be one perfect society. But obviously, every person has his or her own utopia. Utopias are really a matter of perspective. So Bob's already mentioned here about Omelar striking some people as being too goody-goody. But I'm sure there are people out there that love the idea of just like Morris dancing all day, watching horse races just doing whatever festival things that they happen to do you know there are some people who live for this like there are a bunch of small towns in england where it's just like old ladies every day they just want to wear ribbons and so forth and you know dance with some handkerchiefs i mean the existence of las vegas and macau definitely attest to this yeah yeah exactly right like there's there's some people just want to just to gamble all day some people want to drink all day you know it's <laughs> there's a utopia for everyone at least in your imagination but every utopia seems to have a price. And I think that's going to be like the ultimate message of this story. Like whatever your utopia is, okay, cool, great, do you. But at the same time, it doesn't come for free. It seems like as a reader, we have to participate in building a society. And then once we've built a society, then we're set up for this big turn in the story, which is, you know, going to be that for every single utopia, no matter how beautiful the utopia you conceive of is, or no matter how beautiful the utopia in this story is, the price will be the abject and total suffering and humiliation of a single child. And that's really the, the crux of this book. And that, that crux, that switch, that, that price that we have to pay, I think is one of the best things that Le Guin does in this story formally, because the first half is one style where, yes, say... There's horses frolicking in the meadow. Say everyone's wearing ribbons. It's very participatory. We get to include our own details as one does when they're building a story, building a narration. But it switches completely because now there's no participation. She's just telling us what we're seeing. So we go from above ground to underground. No reader inclusion in the world building. It's just the narrator saying this is how this child is suffering, and it's just extreme specificity. Yeah, that's a really good point. I completely didn't notice that there's a switch in the narration style with the twist. Now, we don't usually talk about the supplementary materials, but you know there is an opening essay attached in some volumes that's written by Le Guin, which 
I think also affects the way we read this story. In it, she details how the idea of Omalas came about. So she was uh, driving into Salem and then in her rearview mirror saw now leaving Salem, Oregon. But of course, it was backwards. So it's Omelas, Oregon, Salem. And she's very explicit about giving the reader free reign to construct Omelas however they see fit. I think it's interesting how editorial choices like attaching this essay in front of the story really helps shape and construct the reader's interpretation. Like, I've spent a lot of time in Salem, Oregon. Not a big fan of the city, but it was really interesting because as I'm imagining Omalas, all I can think of is these different locations inside of Salem. Yeah, so you're saying that including this essay at the beginning of the book really ruins the book for anyone from Oregon. If you're imagining Salem, you don't want to live there. <laughs> but the idea of, yes, participating is interesting because it's almost it's almost like a schematic or a template where... The Gwyn is kind of providing us little prompts, and then we're filling in the details to a degree. There's the beginning of the story starts like this. With a clamor of bells that set the swallows soaring, the festival of summer came to the city, Omalas, bright towered by the sea. And so even the way the book begins, it's more like a series of establishing shots. And we don't zoom in on anything with particular detail, so we don't have to commit to anything for the entire first half. That is, nothing set in stone. We're building it in our head in that first half. You know, I'm really interested in the idea of like schematics or templates because I think that she she is using a template with this story. Like no matter how much of it is left to the reader to construct, I think that every reader is very familiar with the genre of utopian writing. And in order for us to be able to fill out the details of this, we need to already understand really the rules of this. So like when she talks about how there's no soldiers in Omelas, she just gives it in a single sentence like, oh, what swells the hearts of the people of Omelas isn't war. You know, she says that the victory that they're celebrating is life, life itself. And I think it's interesting how someone like Samuel Butler or Thomas More would really take an entire chapter to dive into something like the military or festivals. And, you know, they would really flesh out this entire concept and they do it across multiple chapters, all these different aspects of the utopia. Le Guin uses just a single sentence or two. It's like, it's like literary impressionism. You know, she's giving us a little dapple of paint here and there. And Really, as a reader, we recognize what's happening. We recognize that a utopia is being built. So I think it's an interesting question to wonder, would the theme of the story have been as well conveyed if it was a full-length exploration? Like, I don't know, could you imagine this as a full novel and then it's like 200 pages in, we get the revelation of the child? It'd be kind of an interesting formal experiment. Yeah, and you know, I think although... She's very impressionistic here. I think she gives just enough detail using this method in order to, you know, fully explore the themes. And of these themes, for me, the key theme was first brought up on the subject of religion. And this theme is guilt, or in this case, the absence of guilt. And here, the religion is kind of like a, a pagan religion. So here's a quote from the book where she briefly impressionistically, but I think in just enough adequate detail, describes the religion in the society. So, religion, yes. Clergy, no. Surely, the beautiful nudes can just wander about, 
offering themselves like divine souffles to the hunger of the needy and the rapture of the flesh. Let them join the procession. Let tambourines be struck above the copulations and the glory of desire be proclaimed upon the gongs. And, a not unimportant point, let the offspring of these delightful rituals be beloved and looked after by all. But one thing I know there is none of in Omelas is guilt. So here is very interesting as a description. You know, it's a very pagan religion. And this lack of guilt is, is very conspicuous in the light of this. So as I understand it, pagan religions and societies, which are kind of like pre-Christian religions is how I think of it, were really based on or functioned on this idea of sacrifice, that a single sacrifice of an individual can cleanse the, the guilt of society, thereby meaning the society kind of retains no guilt. All of the guilt is externalized and projected onto a single person. So René Girard called this the scapegoat. And René Girard, who's a you know social theorist, very famous, also religious thinker and kind of philosopher, thought that the big innovation of Christianity was that in the figure of Christ, we actually realized collectively that the scapegoat was the innocent one. And that therefore the whole process got demystified. We could no longer guiltlessly scapegoat someone and then feel good about ourselves. We kind of knew what we were doing. And this was the big innovation of Christianity. The crucifixion broke this cycle. And now what Christians do is kind of memorialize the crucifixion in order that we don't have to continue this cycle of scapegoating. As Gerard saw it, this was kind of like God's, the way that Christ sort of died for our sins. He's like, he's released us from this, this process. And now we can just recall the ultimate sacrifice and therefore we, are, we don't have to keep repeating it. In short, the result of this is that we internalize the guilt. Instead of being able to externalize it and just project it on something else, we now we've internalized it, the guilt, and it's become part of us. So it's very interesting here that we have this like post-Christian return to like pre-Christian religious ideas in this society. And, you know, the implications of that are actually quite large, I think. Yes, yeah, so the, the innovation of Christ, but also all of those people in the past were drinking beer and wine all the time. There's no good water. So everyone's always a little drunk. It's pretty easy to, to slough off the guilt when you're, when you're bibbing from the wine. Tell me about it. You got to get it, get it out somehow. The, the idea that there is no guilt in Omelas, I just couldn't buy that because I immediately, I guess as a reader, just felt that guilt. When we fall out of the utopia and into that dystopia, the way that Le Guin describes it, here's the, here's the opening line. In a basement under one of the beautiful public buildings of Omelas, in the room a child is sitting. It could be a boy or a girl. It looks about six, but actually is nearly ten. It is feeble-minded. Perhaps it was born defective, or perhaps it has become imbecile through fear, malnutrition, and neglect. I, as the reader, I certainly feel that kind of maybe Christian guilt. At least I feel some sort of guilt. So I'm wondering, is this my own problem as a post-Christian reader, or is this just the mechanics of the book? I'm not sure if I find a distinction between pagan and Christian, or even like a religious framework in general to be really useful when talking about this story. John, you're talking about the child in terms of being a scapegoat, and Bob, you know, you're you're gesturing towards a broad idea of Catholic guilt, and I can see how you two bring up how, but I think that the function of the child within this story is really so powerful 
because it's just ambiguous enough for us to project our own symbology onto it. You know, we make it into whatever analogy we personally want it to be. And yes, I think it can be read as a religious metaphor, but I'm not convinced that it's only a religious metaphor. Yeah, I don't think so either. I agree that the child is not simply a symbol of like, one of these things in exclusion of all others. However, I do think that this religious framework is is very important to actually understand like where guilt comes from, you know, the genesis of the guilt. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of thinkers have posited that this is through Christianity, you know, to give one example, the genealogy of morals, Nietzsche, you know, he's like, Christianity is, is where we get this notion of guilt and pity and we internalize this. So the fact that here the religion is pagan in nature to me indicates a return to this kind of pre-guilt state. And, you know, it's kind of an open question whether we actually can do that now, right? Like, historically speaking, if we've now introduced guilt into the world as we're introduced guilt into our hearts and our souls, then can we really discard with that, even if we've discarded with the religious basis for it? You know, I feel like we need to draw a clarifying point of distinction here, because when you say pagan, you're not talking about, you know, Greco-Roman pantheistic Really, what you just mean is non-Christian, right? Basically, I mean, I'm I'm just talking about the kind of religion that is a bunch of festivals with with no emotional baggage, you know? Perform your ritual, give your sacrifice, you know, sing your song, job done, you know? We all go home happy, no problem. In this case, however, the sacrifice is actually still alive. This is the kind of the horrifying part of this. You know, at least if they killed the sacrifice, it'll be like, okay, great, put him out of his misery. For this kid, though, there is just endless misery. And actually, I kind of, now I'm thinking about it, it seems like a kind of inversion of the Christ thing, because Christ gets sacrificed, and then he dies, and he's reborn. And now he, you know, he kind of lives eternally. And there's a kind of symbol in that, I think, or at least according to the Girardian reading, which is that since he's uh, died and then lived on, it's kind of relieved the need for a continuation of this this scapegoat mechanism, as he calls it. Now, here... It's kind of a cool system because the kid's still alive. So you don't need to like sacrifice a new kid every, you know, every harvest or whatever it is. It it lasts for a, a good amount of time. But obviously at some point the kid's going to die. And then what happens then? I don't know. That's kind of a mystery here. Okay. So at least uh, this religion is informed by having lived through religions or us having bumped into different religions. So, you know, non-Christian, pagan there's lots of things going on here. But, but yes, for the for this kid, there is no suffering until they are dead. And they will have to get a new one. But however long this scapegoat survives, could be 10 years, could be 20 years, their life is just the worst conceivable life. And everyone in Omelas, about the time of puberty, every citizen has to go see this child. They are prepared in advance. They're told that, well, this child's suffering is the only way for our society's happiness. So they're prepped. They know what they're going to see, but still lots of them just can't take it. Some, they, they never go home after seeing the child. They're taken, they see, and they leave. And they're never heard from again. Others return home. And they live normal lives until maybe, maybe they're 30 or 40, even 50. They suddenly just can't handle it anymore, and they leave Omelas never to return. So although this might be a, a kind of pagan pre-guilt, for these people who who still lived there for 20 or 30 years, it seems like guilt might have been growing inside of them until they finally had to leave. So arranging this book in these these two halves, which we've identified, the first where we create alongside the author, and in the second where we're given the details of the upshot of our creation, which is the 
lifetime of suffering for this poor child. However long she survives, she's sitting in her own shit and just her body is covered in festering wounds. That's awful. And it makes me feel really guilty, even having taken part in fun horses frolicking through the meadows and ribbons in everyone's hair. Yeah, I I mean, that's that's a really great observation, uh, you know that there are two halves of the story. And in this second half of the story, it's more detailed. It's almost like, you know, that scene in Clockwork Orange where Malcolm McDowell's character is just sort of sat on a chair and then they they hold his eyes open with like tape or like sticks or something. He has to just watch horrifying scenes. And it's like this, like you have so much detail on what this kid's actually going through. You literally can't look away. It's like you have to see it all in all of its horrible detail. I actually thought the worst detail was the fact that in this small room, there are these two mops just just two mops but this kid is terrified of mops <laughs> and so he lives his life in just complete terror of these two mops that's casting a shadow on the wall i feel for some reason that's the the part that stuck with me most about what this kid's going through like it's not just physical torture it's just this psychological torture that is is just you can't even imagine how horrible it must be for the kid but i think what is startling is you have these two halves of the story you have like the second half, which is so gory and so gruesome, you have to deal with it. And then the first half, and there's a, such a contradiction between these two. And there's a contradiction in the misery of this child, but also the, the splendor of this society. I mean, this society is not just mundanely content with life. You know, they're not just meeting all the basic needs and kind of like living this kind of stupid animal happiness. But it's a society that's like full of life, full of invention, full of art, just everything good you can imagine. This society's overflowing with it. And this good is actually a direct consequence of this child's misery. It even comes from this child's misery. Quote, they know that they, like the child, are not free. They, the, the people from Omalas, know compassion. It's the existence of the child and their knowledge of its existence that makes possible the nobility of their architecture, the poignancy of their music, the profundity of their science. It is because of the child that they are so gentle with children. They know that if the wretched one were not there sniveling in the dark, the other one, the flute player, could make no joyful music as the young riders line up in their beauty for the race in the sunlight of the first morning of summer. So it's not just an accidental thing here that the society is happy, but a kid has to suffer, but it's a direct consequence. It's almost like without this kid suffering, the society could not prosper. And then it obviously raises the, the key issue here, whether that's justified. Quote, to exchange all the goodness and grace of every life in Omalas for that single small improvement, that is the happiness of this child, to throw away the happiness of thousands for the chance of happiness of one, that would be to let guilt within the walls indeed. It seems like the difficulty here is if this child is given the chance for happiness, then the happiness of everyone else would kind of go away and nobody would really be happy, but nobody would really be miserable. Whereas if this kid suffers, then everyone else is super, super, super happy. So we're really struck with this utilitarian versus religious difficulty here from a utilitarian perspective what's good for the greatest number of people the kids should suffer right it's justified it's worth it in this utilitarian atheistic sense however if we retain any spiritual notion that all the benefits and good things in the world can't outweigh the suffering of a single soul then we would have to say that this society is unjust and we can't possibly accept it so to me we can't really avoid this religious issue and 
really then the question is in our own conscience. Do we feel the value of that individual life? And do we feel that it weighs more and is worth more than the wonderful society that is derived from it for everyone else? That's the real question. You know, it's it's also a really good defense mechanism when you think about it for the utopia because it's a, it's a practical defense mechanism. Because yes, if I decide to destroy this utopia or create a revolution to destroy this utopia to mm. save one or to let one have the chance at happiness, I am ruining my yeah. mom's happiness, my brother's happiness, all of my neighbor's happiness. You know, I'm ruining society for people I know, not just taking down a corrupt society. Right. It's like you'd have to give up everything for this for this one other person that you've potentially you've maybe met once but you don't know them yeah and their their life already sucks anyway they can never recover from this and -hmm. if you do let them out their life's going to be shitty anyway and if if they Mm. are the cause of all this happiness you're going to ruin everyone else you're going to destroy everyone else's life so you know no one's going to want to take that risk just for one person's happiness so i think we've we've pretty clearly established that every citizen of Omalas is aware of this child's suffering, and they are complicit in the suffering of that child. And we've talked about the the wager between like the utilitarian understanding and maybe more like a oh I don't know like a like a, a Christian good to all understanding of ethics. But Bob, earlier you raised a really interesting point about how the style of the story itself makes the reader complicit in what's happening just simply through the way of how we construct Omalas according to our imaginations. So if we, the reader, are complicit in what's happening, do you feel like there's a similar spiritual obligation to the reader to choose whether or not we walk away from Omalas? Does does Le Guin go so far as to explicitly confront the reader on this? I think the playfulness in the style gets you ready for the question, for the big question, Though Le Guin does not ask that question explicitly, she asks us twice whether we believe Omalas exists, once before she dives into the horrible basement, and once before she tells us about those who ultimately leave Omalas. So personally, as a reader, I'm already primed to start thinking about these things, and when I see other people leaving Omalas, I couldn't help but feeling, well... I've also got to engage this question. So she seems to be raising it by implication. Maybe implication, I I think more by example, almost, because I see these other people doing it. I think, well, am I as brave as them or am I going to keep living in this society? Okay, so then that really raises the next question. What is our omelas that we as readers need to decide whether we walk from? Does Le Guin seem to be proposing anything? Is is there something in the story that, that... makes this analogy clear. I mean, just by contrast, Laoshu's cat country was very explicit about what aspects of society it was critiquing. It had a whole laundry list of things it didn't like about Chinese society in the 1930s, and it went through them step by step. But for myself, I found this text to be much more amorphous and what precisely it's concerned about. I'll take a crack at, I guess, one one omelas that we have going on. There's always omelases going on in the world, I think. But the the cell phone I'm talking on right now, you know, which takes the 35,000 children who are shoved into the mines to scrape out the cobalt. So there's always kind of an omelas, like it, there's a safety thing with cell phones. Everyone is expected to have a cell phone for all sorts of different reasons. If you don't, you're a crazy person and you probably 
your life is a mess. So you're required to have a cell phone, yet all these people are suffering to make it. But anyway, I think to think about the Gwyn's, whether there's a message or whether there's a specific society she's critiquing, you know, we could look at the year the book was published, do some research on that. But I think it might just be a more more criticism of genre and life in general, of this this sci-fi utopian genre, and a criticism of all of the ones that have come before it, and the idea that there ever could be a utopia without a price. You know, I kind of think like your omelas is like whatever comes to mind when you are confronted with this issue. Whenever someone asks you, what is your omelas? That's, that's your omelas. You know, Le Guin is very deliberately ambiguous throughout this story as to what she's actually referring to, which does give it like a timeless quality, I think. I agree. It does give it a timeless quality, but it also means the story has no teeth. So like in the abstract, we can all agree that you know, a town should not flourish off of the suffering of a single child. But without really connecting the symbol to any real world thing, it really just leaves me searching my life for my own private omelas. And maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, it's a tough one thinking about whether this has teeth or not. You know, we said that Cat Country had quite a few teeth. It was very critical, but Laosha was beaten by the government and ultimately killed himself. So when you criticize your own society, whether or not he was doing that. When you criticize a society, a real-life society, there's going to be big repercussions. So yes, this is a personal society, and maybe when you don't, I guess, attack one in particular, it might not have teeth, but I would like to observe this as we read more dystopian books and see if we think other ones are as toothless. Mm. And you know, it really puts the onus on the reader, and you know, if you don't have an omelas, congratulations, you have succeeded in not letting guilt into the walls. You are Patrick Bateman. Maybe, but I do think that we can distinguish between a personal guilt and a collective guilt. And, you know, I would say a collective guilt is something that's shared by all the members of Omelas. Everyone feels it, and it's all directed towards the same object. But personal guilt is, you know, what I feel after I steal something. But if we follow this thread and this distinction, then this book is giving us an example of collective guilt. And then it's seemingly asking us to apply it to our own personal guilt, to walk away from our own private omelases. It's kind of a strange distinction. But yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Zach. I'm reminded again of Cat Country here, actually. In Cat Country, there's the character Hawk, who sacrifices himself for absolutely no good reason. In Repent, Harlequin, the Harlequin is killed, but he doesn't seem to like successfully affect any big change in society as a whole. In this case, you can walk away from Omelas, but are you really changing anything? You know, you walk away from Omelas, okay, great, but the kid's still in the basement. So what has really changed here? And it seems that although personal guilt is being derived from collective guilt, and this is something a lot of us feel, there's a difficulty in actually putting that guilt into practice, actually doing something with it. Unless, of course, that personal guilt is once again elevated to a kind of rival, separate collective guilt, which can overpower the suppressed guilt of the society at large. You know, it takes a kind of collective movement in order to act on personal desires. And there's obviously a, a kind of contradiction in terms there. So we're left with this problem in dystopia of whether we walk away and keep our own hands clean or we get our hands dirty in the collective fight for justice and in joining the collective kind of give up our own personal 
autonomy in some sense. So, so far in the stories we've read, the people going against dystopias have been in the minority and nothing has changed as a result. And it's interesting to see these different answers to the genre questions of utopia and dystopia. Do you walk away? Is it your own personal choice? Do you try to destroy it? Should the whole society be destroyed? We saw kind of these conversations when we talked about Cat Country and Repent Harlequin because we came away feeling that both of those societies were so corrupt and unlivable that they they were going to destroy themselves or they needed to be destroyed because they were just harming everyone and everyone was kind of complicit in giving away a certain part of their humanity. I think we didn't like those societies because they were no longer human. But in Omalas, because of this scapegoat, because of this person who suffers, who is not us, who is not the collective, but the individual, it becomes the individual members of that collective to decide, just like you said. Do we walk away? Do we not walk away? Mm. And that seems to be kind of like what makes this a dystopia. Because although for a lot of it, like you mentioned, it's like kind of like a, un- a utopia within a dystopia, there is still this aspect where it seems like there's an argument here that in order to accept this society, in order to live in this society, involves giving up a part of your humanity, as you put it. In this case, the part of your humanity that feels guilt and acts upon it. Well, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. So you are actually giving up part of your humanity, but mm. it is a part. So that puts it in tradition of dystopia, I think, very clearly in terms of the way you've put it. That's very true. Yeah, you kind of give away your dignity in cat country. You give away, I guess, just anything that <laughs> any chaos in humanity. You give that away and repent Harlequin because it's all order. All you give the time. up jelly beans. You give up jelly beans. Who wants to live in a world without jelly beans? <laughs> you know, as a child, I used to go visit the Jelly Belly factory in California. Some of my fondest memories. <laughs> Did you ever think about bombing it to get us back into order? God no. <laughs> that's my that's my nightmares. That's your nightmares. Living in a utopia. That's your own private omelas. <laughs> yeah. So let's see how the next author approaches the question of leave the dystopia or destroy the dystopia. For our final book, we're reading We by Russian author Yevgeny Zamyatin. It's a classic and influential Russian novel about a future, hyper-rational state. Talk to you later, Bob and John. Talk to you later, John and Zach. Talk to you later, Zach and Bob. Bye.